Second, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we're going to be in verses 14 through 20 tonight. <clears throat> and the title of this evening is just simply, Faith for Now and Faith for Then. Faith for Now and Faith for Then. We'll read verses 14 through 20 and then have a word of prayer. It says this, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is to come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire." Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this evening that we can get together to study your word. God, we thank you for your your goodness to us that we have your word to study, that uh, you have given us this letter, God, that, that teaches us um, who you are and how you desire for us to live in this world. But, God, we thank you that you also have given us your spirit, that we can understand your word, and, and that he also empowers us to live out the things that we read in this, um, in this book. We pray, God, tonight as we look into this section of Scripture that you'd help us to understand uh, what Paul is saying and how it applies to our lives. And then, God, I pray that you'd give us the strength to go out from this place and live these things out for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, We have said that as Paul wrote this letter to them, he was really seeking to be an encouragement to them because they were a good church. They were doing good things, they were on the right track, and he wanted to see them continue. And last time as we looked into the middle of chapter 2, we saw how Paul showed them how his own life had been shaped by the gospel, inside and out. Everything about him uh, was transformed by the gospel. And then he challenged and encouraged them to allow their lives to be fully shaped by the gospel as well. And we talked about what that looks like. And so as he continues in his writing tonight, uh, he reveals to them how their faith is both beneficial for now and for the future. He, he talks about things that are in the present, uh, the sufferings, that they'll face, the the difficulties that they were facing, and the good company they were in in those sufferings. Uh, But then he talks about the future, when he will see them in the presence of Jesus. And Paul had great rejoicing in his heart, first and foremost, over the idea of seeing Jesus, but then secondarily, of seeing these people whom he loved and labored for in the presence of Jesus. It's almost like he was excited to experience the goodness of God as he saw Christ face to face, but then he was excited to see other people experience the goodness of God as they saw Christ face to face. And I think we get what that is like, right? We, who enjoys getting a gift? I think we all do. Don't, don't lie, people. Come on. <laughs> Both hands up. We all... <laughs> but who also likes giving a gift and seeing the joy on somebody else's face when they open it? It's a, it's a pleasant thing, and that's what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm excited to be in the presence of Christ, but I'm, I'm almost doubly excited because I'll see you in the presence of Christ. And he says, you're my crown of rejoicing. And it's just a beautiful picture, and we'll get there towards the end. Um, as we think about 
faith for now and faith for then, though, we understand that faith, true faith, is not nearsighted or farsighted, but it keeps things in focus in the present and in the future. It doesn't just focus on the here and now, and it doesn't just focus on the then and there. It, it blends the two together and says, because of the then and there, I can have hope and joy and peace in the here and now. And though my trials are real in the here and now, I know that these trials are not the end because I'm looking ahead to the things that are to come. And so he's trying to encourage them as they were navigating the present situations and encouraging them to have true joy and hope as they thought towards the future. As we think about our Christian lives, why is it a good thing for us to do that? Why, does it, why is it a good thing to not just focus on the now or not just focus on the then, but, but keep a balance of both the now and the then as we make our way through life? Any thoughts? Patsy? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you understand what your true purpose is when you keep a proper balance of those things. That's good. Kelly? Sure, yeah, for sure, yeah, thinking too much of, of uh, eternal things that you just sit in a chair and suck your thumb, right? I don't know. What does that look like? Have you done that? No, <laughs> not recently. <laughs> Anybody else? Why is it good for us to do this? Rebecca. Yeah, just compels you to press on. For me, as I thought through it this week, um, it just brings clarity. Like if, if, I'm, if I'm only focused on the now, then I don't have clarity even for tomorrow. And if I'm only focused on the future, then I don't have clarity for what's happening in the moment, right? I'm, I'm confused or there's, there's turmoil in my mind. And I, I don't like it when I can't understand things. So what's the best way for me to understand things? By pressing forward in the now, by thinking towards the future, that God has a purpose in all that he's doing. We believe that, right? As we saw uh, and talked about this morning, and understanding that purpose will be seen fully then uh, encourages me to take the next step and gives me steadiness in, in my present life here and now. As we saw last Sunday morning, as Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, uh, he, he said how Christ had uh, won the victory through his resurrection. He had defeated death, hell, and the grave. And then he goes on to say that because of what Christ has done, he encourages the church at Corinth to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And when you, when you hear those words, they don't really make sense because being steadfast, the Greek word really means to be sedentary, to sit there and do nothing. But then he says to be abounding. He says to be uh, unmovable, but he says to be moving forward. And I think that's the tension that Paul is describing here in this chapter, that, that there has to be an understanding of what's going on now and an understanding of what is to come. And when those two things blend together, then you have peace in life regardless of what comes your way. And so as Paul was talking to the church at Corinth about abounding in the work of the Lord, we understand that's not a sedentary thing, right? It's, it's not something where we just sit on our thumbs or are so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. But abounding in the work of the Lord, it, it means to be pressing forward um, with a steadiness as God accomplishes his, his work through us as uh, we stay submitted to him. And so passages like the one we're studying tonight, that passage in 1 Corinthians 
uh, 15, they give us confidence and assurance, and they grip our hearts with a divine energy that though I don't understand what's going on here, I can take the next step. And if you've ever, ever talked to somebody who has, has been going through such a, a, a deep, deep trial, there's an energy, a divine energy about them when their focus is in the right place that they'll say things like, I don't know how I'm moving forward, but every day I'm taking the next step. Well, what is that? It's a gift of God's grace. It's, it's faith for the now and faith for then. It's thinking through what is to come, and that, that thinking of what's to come compels us to take the next step in this moment. And so uh, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, and as, as we go through this passage tonight, we see that Paul is continuing to express his heart for them, and he does so without using the word faith, but, but faith is really the theme of the, of the letter. It's the theme of the chapter. It's the theme of these verses we're going to look at, and I hope that, that we can make sense of that as we go through it together this evening. Broken it up into three sections. I don't normally do this on Sunday nights, but uh, I did, so I don't know why, but I did. And uh, I'm going to give you the headings, and then if you take notes, you can have them, uh, even if we don't fully cover all of them. But verses 14 through 16, we see his praise. In verses 17 and 18, we see his desire. And in verses 19 and 20, uh, we see his delight. 14 through 16, his praise. Uh, 17 and 18, his desire. And then... 19 and 20, his delight. And so let's start with his praise. And verse number 14, he says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which uh, in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Now, as, as he's encouraging them, he's writing about the real things that they're going through. So he again uses this word brethren to draw their minds to this reality that they are on the same playing field as Paul. And I, I know I've hammered that several times recently, and I think it's important for us to understand because as they were prone to doing, I think sometimes we're prone to doing that, oh, the, the people in the Bible were at a different level of spirituality than we are. No, they were men and women like we are. And they had faults and failings like we have. And they had um, desires that sometimes led them astray. And so when Paul says, I'm writing to you as a brother... He says, hey, we're, we're in this together. There's a camaraderie here that, that can't be shaken, that can't be stripped of us. We are brothers in Christ. He says, for ye, brethren, you became followers of the churches of God, uh, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. And so he, he gives them confidence that they're not alone in this battle. He gives them confidence to say, hey, you followed the truth. You're not following the church of, of Paul or Apollos. You're not following the church of, of Stephen or any other good person he says, you're following the churches of God in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You've got the real deal, and you need to continue in what you've heard of them. And part of the way that, that they knew they had the real deal is because of the suffering that they were facing in their lives. Um, it should be no surprise to us as believers that suffering is going to be a reality in some way, shape, or form. I, I do still think that we have it for the most part, relatively, I don't, I don't like the word easy because it minimizes things that people actually go through, but our, our suffering is different than other places in the world. We can say it that way, right? That, that there are people who are, whose lives are on the line for their faith, and it could come to that here in this place as well, and we have to be determined to stick with it. And so Paul is praising them and, and encouraging them to remember that they're not alone 
in their suffering. Their suffering was real, and Paul recognized that, and their suffering was a good thing. As Paul's talking about their suffering, it's not a lament here, it's a praise. He's not saying, oh, you poor church at Thessalonica, you've been going through such difficulties, and it just shouldn't be that way. How many times have we been guilty of saying something like that? I think we all have. But Paul is praising them and saying, you're, you're suffering for the gospel, and you're suffering in good company. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 15, as he speaks about um, these, these evil men who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. What did we learn about this morning? The parable that Christ spoke in, in Mark 12 was about the wicked men who had killed the prophets, the wicked men who killed the Son. And so Paul is, is under, writing, understanding those things that had taken place. And again, he's not saying this is a horrible thing. What does Jesus say as he quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 118? He said, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so while the suffering isn't marvelous, the, the reason for suffering is marvelous, the gospel and the result of the suffering is often marvelous. And what is that? That more people get saved out of that. And so he's encouraging them and he's praising them to continue on. And he reminds them that they are in good company. But as he's, as he's speaking to them, we have to keep in mind that there's a right reason to suffer and a wrong reason to suffer. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.14, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Those are bold words, Peter. Don't be afraid, don't be troubled at, their, at, the, at what these evil and wicked men want to do, you, do to you, but rather be happy. And I don't think it's the, the sense like these guys are out there saying, bring it, bring on the suffering, right? We want it all. But it's that in their suffering, they could say, hey, we're in good company here. That the prophets and the apostles and Christ, our Savior, suffered the same things at the hands of these same types of men, and so this is a, this is a positive thing. And we know that, that this was not Peter's thought, but he was in reality thinking of the words that Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute and, sh and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so his praise is legitimate. His praise is, is not just something that he came up with, but it's something that Peter also spoke of, and it's something that Christ spoke of, that, that the things you are going through, brothers and sisters, they are, they are signs that you are on the right path but I thought Christianity was supposed to be easy. I thought Christianity was supposed to be a, a road less traveled, right, that, that was full of scenic views and pristine waterfalls and untouched beaches. No, it's, it's full of suffering. It's full of turmoil, and sometimes that suffering and turmoil is external. Sometimes that suffering and turmoil is internal, that the things you face are, are things that the world doesn't understand, but he praises them. And then he goes into verse 16 as he continues this idea of praise, and he says, Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for the wrath is to come upon them to the uttermost. 
And so he praises them in verse 14 because they were following the truth. He praises them in verses 14 and 15 because of the suffering they were facing. He was pra- continued praising them as he talked about the, the wicked men who, who wouldn't allow Paul and his men to speak the truth of the gospel. And he, he, he says in verse 15, understand this though, that their reward is coming. When it talks about that they, they fill up their sin always, it's like in, in the Greek, the picture would be like a container that is, is full to the top. I remember I used to be obnoxious. Maybe you think I still am. I don't know. But when I would pour somebody a drink, um, what do you do? You pour it till it's over the brim of the cup, right? And then they have to move the cup, and what happens? It spills out all over the place. Um, I don't do that anymore because now I pay for my drinks. and <laughs> I don't want to waste stuff. But that's the picture that Paul is using there, that, that these, these evil men, these persecuting men, these wicked men, they're filling up their sins always, filling them up to the top so that there, there can be no more sin in them. And I think that describes a pretty wicked person. And then what does he say? But don't worry, for the wrath is to come upon them to the uttermost. And I'll state this, and I hope it makes sense. We don't rejoice in the reality of wicked men going to hell but there's comfort in the life of somebody who is suffering for the gospel's sake that God is a just judge. Why? Because I don't have to have the final word. I I don't have to cast judgment or condemn or retaliate. I mean, what does it say of Christ? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Why? Because he knew that they were filling their sins up to the, the, the fullness and that God would exact a judgment that was just. You see, my, my judgments are not always just. Anybody else make a judgment before, and you say, well, maybe that wasn't fair of me to think that way. But God's judgments are always just. And as he's praising these people for being steadfast and unmovable and always abounding, he's, he's encouraging them to remember that, that though your life is hard, God would bring a just judgment to these who are doing the evil. And so what can you do well, you can continue on because faith for then fuels the faith for now. The thoughts of the future give you strength and courage to press on in the moment, even when the moment is really hard. And I know we, we all face difficult things, and some of it is, is difficult because we live in a fallen world. Some of us have faced difficult things because of our faith, um, and I, I think that's real. I think there, there are people in this room have, who have experienced hardships because of their faith in Christ. But understanding what's waiting for us gives us courage to take the next step. Because just as they will stand before a judge, so will we. And what's the, what's the easy way out when you're facing persecution? What's the quickest way to get persecution to stop? Quit what you're doing, right? Go a different direction, do a different thing. And Paul says, that's not what I'm compelling you to do. I'm compelling you to stay steadfast and unmovable to continue to abound in the work of the Lord. All right, I said a lot and didn't give you time to say much. So as we think about his praise in verses 14 through 16, any thoughts come to your mind? Dave. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can give you a full answer of that. 
because it is confusing, but he's, he's obviously speaking of the, the persecution that the former groups had faced and the persecution that the present groups are facing. And so I, I think he's leaving it kind of, and maybe a different version gives more clarity to this, but it's almost like he's leaving it kind of open, right, to, to say that just understand there's persecution going on. There's, there's been persecution going on, and there is persecution going on. And what does that tell us? That there will be persecution going on, right? And so their, their countrymen, uh, as we said, when, you know, when the gospel came into Thessalonica, obviously it was a very contentious thing because what did Paul have to do? We saw in Acts 17, he had to leave by night to get out of there or else they would have killed him. So there were men, there were people in Thessalonica um, who, who did not like the gospel, and therefore um, he's alluding to this idea that, that you have faced persecution, we have faced persecution, and uh, those who, who have gone before us have faced those same things. But good thought. Somebody else? Yeah, and, and who better to write about stuff like that than Paul, right? He was one who was brought out of that uh, lifestyle of persecution, um, and now he was on the other side. That idea of is there levels of suffering in hell, that's, that's certainly a widely debated thing, um, and I don't know fully where I land on that. That's why I question. Yeah, I agree with you, and I, th- I, think, I think when we understand the fullness of hell is just the the uh, absence of God, right? That's the fullness of hell. But there, there is also a clear picture in the Bible that, that there's more than just that, right? It is the absence of God, but it's also some sort of torment and suffering. Uh, it talks about an eternal flame and a, a hot flame. And um, God, God knows those things, but it does make our minds wonder about those things, and it should, as Bruce said, it should compel us that even for our persecutors, that we would pray for them. And that's what Jesus said, right? Pray for those who persecute you. And look at Paul. Yeah. He had that personal testimony. Yeah. He was one of those guys who was facing wrath to the other way. Right. And then he's the greatest preacher. <laughs> more persecution than anybody yeah. except for Christ himself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think that's in part what compelled him as he understood the depths of, of the suffering that was awaiting those on the other side, um, 
You know, for him, his suffering was a light thing. That's what he says. It's a light thing for the present moment, and it's producing a, a weight of glory in me that I don't yet understand. But they're suffering. I mean, they're already suffering internally, right? We get that, right? That lost people, there's a level of suffering internally that they don't even understand, that they can't express because of the absence of God. And that suffering leads to suffering. And so it's not our job to kick people while they're down, um, but to, to go to them and, and help them and, and bring the truth of the gospel to them. Good thoughts. Anybody else? Patsy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, beyond what we can imagine. Anybody else? Why, why do you think his praise was helpful to them? Yeah, just an encouragement. Jesse. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're on the right path, right? Though it doesn't feel right, you're on the right path and you're moving in the right direction. That's good. All right, anybody else before we move on? Dave. I just also, uh, the fact that, I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that most of the people who are in the church who listen to this message, they have viewed those Jewish leaders as those people who are persecuted now up until recently those were the religious elite yeah. that they were aware of. And it's, it's got to be hard. Like, we're, we're, we're off on a branch here, and are, are we just completely on our yeah. own? And are we going way off track from, from what our, you know, what the, the trusted religious leaders of the day would have said? Yeah. And uh, to just say, look, that's, that's wrong. Or you guys are the right place. Yeah. That's the branch that we are. Um, is, I think is very encouraging. Yeah. Definitely, I like that. And I, I do think that's why he, he says what he said in verse number 14. You're not just followers of me, right? It's not just my doctrine, but you're following the churches of God in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. The, their founder is God, right? And so if, if we can stay in that vein, um, then that's a good thing. And we'll find, we'll find the truth as we continue in that way. And he's compelling them to press on in that and praises them for their faithfulness thus far. He's not just saying be faithful, but what's he saying? Hey, you've been faithful, so continue to be faithful. Their faith was heard about everywhere, right? Paul didn't have to speak of them because everybody else was speaking of them. So he's basically just saying, hey, continue to do what you're doing, and uh, you'll, you'll continue to, to find God's favor and God's peace in your life. All right, we'll move on to verse seven, verses 17 and 18. We see his desire. He says, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. So he uses the word brethren, and he, he says, I, I, want you to, I want to express my desire towards you, that, that we were taken from you for a short time in presence. And we know uh, we've looked at that passage in Acts 17, I believe it was, where Paul and Silas had to leave by night uh, because the tension was so great. Because of the gospel they preached, it brought such a change um, that, that people wanted to do away with Paul just as they wanted to do away with Christ, as we've been seeing in Mark's gospel. And Paul says, we've, we've been taken from you in presence, but not in heart. He said, we're not there face to face. I can't sit at a table and encourage you. 
but understand this, you've been in my heart. The, the love that I have for you goes beyond just uh, a face-to-face meeting or a, a physical uh, proximity, right? It's, it's a, a deep love that is sown in my heart uh, because we're brothers, right? He uses that word again here, brothers. And, and I've got two brothers, and I don't think that much could come between us to where I could say I don't love them. Maybe times where I don't like them, <laughs> don't agree with them, right? But, but there's something significant about a brotherly love. And that in, in Christ, that's not tied to DNA, right? It's, it's tied to spirituality, that we have new life in Christ as we are brothers and sisters. So he says, we, we desire to be with you. We wish we could be there in presence. We are there in heart. And we've endeavored more abundantly to see your face with great desire, but it's just not happening, right? As, as much as we've wanted to be there, Satan has hindered us. And I think this is, a, this is an interesting passage, passages like this, that bring a tension that our minds can't fully comprehend, that Paul wants to be there in their presence with them, and yet Satan is hindering that. Now, who reigns over all? God does. Yet who is being blamed for Paul not being able to be in their presence? Satan is. And I think it goes to speak to the spiritual battle that is raging in this world that we often don't think of. That's why in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand it in the evil day, and having done all to stand. What did Paul believe? That Satan was very real, that demonic forces were very real, that, that evil in this world was very real. I actually got to preach on this passage, those exact verses, on Friday down at the Pastor's Fellowship. And in verse 13, where he says that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, withstanding is not typically a positive thing, right? Standing against something, facing that level of, of evil or, or um, I can't even think of the word I want to say, that level of, of uh, negativity, not, not the word I wanted. I'll probably think of it tonight at three in the morning. Um, but as he's facing that much pressure from the, the, the dark forces in this world, He's saying, hey, but God has given you everything you need to stand. And so this church, though they longed to see Paul, guess what? They didn't need Paul in their presence to stand. Why? Because God had given them everything they needed. But they had to choose to put on the armor of God. And uh, I, I joked Friday that we have a problem in our house with winter coats, the boys especially. They'll come outside today. It's cold outside. Noah comes out, or actually Anderson, this was yesterday. Anderson came out with a t-shirt on. I said, where's your coat? He said, I don't need a coat. I'm not cold. I said, what if the car breaks down? Go inside and get a coat. If, if the car breaks down, then I'm going to have to do what? Give up my coat. And I can't like, be labeled as a bad dad for not giving up my coat. But the reason oftentimes that we are not able to withstand is because we make the choice to not put on. God gives us every, everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says. He gives us everything we need to withstand in the evil day. And when is the evil day? It's not future, it's present. Why? Because there's darkness all around us. There's evil all around us. And uh, 
Paul in this passage, you may think we're getting off on a rabbit trail, but we're not. Paul in this passage is saying, hey, the reason I'm not there is because of the evil in this world has not allowed it. Now, what was the evil? Well, we know that when he was there, he got forced out because of evil and wicked men. And so what is, what is he saying? That there's evil and wicked men that are being, to some de- degree, controlled or ruled or influenced by evil forces, and those evil forces do not want the gospel to come in. It, you think of, like, the, the settings that we've seen in Mark with, with demons, um, the maniac of Gadara, right? That he had been chained, he had been tied up in fetters, and every one of those things he was able to break free from because the evil within him that was so great, yet who was able to overcome that evil? Christ was. Christ was. Christ could withstand that. Why? Because he was walking in the fullness of the reality of the armor of God. Everything that is ours now is what Christ had armed himself in when he came to this earth. And I, I think sometimes we, we do ourselves a disservice when we say that Christ was fully human and fully divine, and that is true, but he was fully human. Amen. He faced what we face, and yet he was able to press on in those things. And I'm not saying that tomorrow you should put on the armor of God and go to the cemetery and find somebody who's demon-possessed. I'm not telling you to do that. But what I am saying is this, that if, if God leads you to a place where there is evil and demonic forces, if you are armed in his armor, then you'll be able to withstand. And maybe that evil and demonic force is not in the form of a demon-possessed person who's out of control, but maybe it's just in the form of wicked men who are heavily influenced by demonic forces. Paul says, hey, you can stand. So we don't need, they didn't need Paul's physical presence because they had God's presence in them. But the, the tension there is always interesting to me, and it's something that I like to think through, that, that God reigns supremely, and yet Paul is saying here that he couldn't get there because of evil men, because Satan hindered them. And it's, it's just a reminder that evil is real, and demonic forces are real, and that, that God does allow, he does allow evil to prevail. And if you doubt that, look at the crucifixion. He does allow evil to prevail, but it's to bring about a greater purpose. And sometimes that greater purpose, and maybe even here for the church at Thessalonica, is that they would be dependent on on God instead of being dependent on Paul. Because they could say, well, well, Paul's here. We don't need anything else. And it's like, no, you do need something else. You need what Paul relies in, and that is the Spirit of God who has come in you at the moment of salvation. So here's Paul's desire. He wants to be there. He is there in heart. I think it expresses his, his true and genuine love for them, um, but, but he was compelling them, even, even in his absence, to press on. And the old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play, Paul's, Paul was pleased that the mice were not playing, that they were continuing steadfast even in his absence. Any thoughts on verses 17 and 18? Dave. Yeah. They were hindered by Satan. Yeah. God had to allow Satan to hinder it. What you just said a couple sentences ago just rang true in my mind that something bad happened to the good. Yeah. Maybe we have these two books of Thessalonians as a result of that. Yeah. Because he couldn't go. Yeah. He wrote the letter. Yeah. And God saved the letter, and we have it. Yeah, I like that thought. I, I think that's a very valid thought. 
God knew what he was doing, right? And that's when we, when we get off on the rabbit trail, like, I think it's okay to say Satan hindered us, understanding that God was in control at all times, because we can give Satan too much credit, right? Oh, I didn't make it to church today, I slept in, and devil made me do it, right? He turned my alarm clock off, like, that's not what Paul's doing here. Like, he had physically tried to get there, and he wasn't able to get there. And he, he, he recognized, yeah, that, that Satan had hindered him, but as we've said, God was still reigning sovereignly over that. And I, that brings comfort to my heart, right, that, that God has a purpose in all of these evil things. And I think that goes back again to what we saw this morning. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It has to be. It has to be the Lord's doing. Heidi. Yeah, yeah, and, and these men are held responsible for it, right? These, these men in Thessalonica who chased Paul out would give an answer for that because they made real choices in real time to do real things, and, uh, but at the same time, God was reigning over that. And that's, that's what I love about the story of Job is Job had to go get permission from God before he could do anything to Job. Or Satan had to, Satan had to go get permission from God to do that, and and it's just a reminder to us, like, I don't know what that looks like on a daily basis, but I do understand that it proves to us that God reigns supremely, and that allows us to lay our heads on our pillows at night and sleep, even in the midst of persecution, and that's what was going on here. They were facing hardships, and uh, these evil men would be held accountable for them, but they could rest that things were not yet out of God's control. Paul desired to be there, but he, he wasn't able to be there. Um, because of evil and wicked men, and yet even that was not outside of God's control. Any other thoughts tonight? This makes me think of Daniel when he prayed, and God said the answer was on the way. Yeah. Michael was talking, and said, but Satan hindered me. Mm. So when we think of Michael, the most powerful yeah. angel in heaven, Satan hindered yeah. me. Yeah. You know, and they didn't bring that answer. And yet, how many times did what happened to Daniel that was bad turn out to be yeah. great? Lion's Den, he didn't die. All those guys got thrown in the lion's den. And then that king is the one who says, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, with all 270 right. advisors. He might have never said that. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. It's crazy. You it know, is. God is just sovereign even in those worst moments. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a sermon the other day, and I was talking about the life of Joseph and how, you know, we look at Joseph's life, and it was filled with tragedy. But some of that tragedy... God allowed to come in his life to keep Joseph humble, right? Like, he, his, he was his dad's favorite son. His brothers hated that about him. And God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery, to be taken to, to Egypt, right, to be set up. And then what happens when he, he starts climbing the ranks? Well, he gets thrown into prison, right? Why? Because at any of those moments, Joseph could have said in his mind, look at me. I have arrived, and yet God wanted to, to get Joseph to where God wanted him to be. He didn't want to get Joseph to where Joseph wanted to be. He wanted to get Joseph to where God wanted him to be, which was to what? Ultimately save the world from a famine and, and reveal the power of God to his brothers, the nations, right? That, that all these people would come to understand that, hey, there is, a, there is a one true God. And so even in Joseph's life, there's comfort in that. 
that we see wicked men do wicked things, but God is always, he's, he's fulfilling his purpose. And as we said this morning, we have, to, we have to look to connect the dots. Because if we just look at it as a, as a confusing story or a, a group of stories that are disconnected, then we'll, we'll not fully understand what is happening. But when we see them as, as God doing this and God doing that and God doing this and God doing that, then we can see the fullness of the story. And it's like that connect the dot picture. When you're done, you can step back and say, hey, it makes sense. It's not going to make sense most times this side of heaven. But one day, friend, it'll make sense. And there's hope in that. Dave, you had your hand up. Yeah. <laughs> to say, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the supernatural force that's keeping yeah. me from this or that or the other thing, because, and probably good to talk to spiritual leaders in yeah. life and all that to, to help you understand that, hey, you know what, this might be something we need to see how it plays out. This could be God's providence yeah. um, trying, to, trying to keep you in the place that you need to be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a excellent point, uh, because as I said, we don't just want to say, everything that bad that happens is because of the enemy, right? Because um, that, that doesn't look well for us because lots of times the, the bad that happens in our lives is a product of our own choices. Um, but there, I think the Spirit does give discernment. And I think, you know, as, as we have First Thessalonians, it's a letter from Paul, but it's truly a letter from God. And as Paul was writing this, the Spirit led him to write that it was Satan that hindered us, right? It was, it was, Paul was submitted enough to the Spirit of God that as he wrote, um, God's words were being put on a page, not just Paul's words. And I think there's, uh, that's, that's a, a valuable thing for us to understand um, and pray for discernment in our own lives. Like, is, is this evil because of me or is this evil because of persecution for my faith? Like, if, have I made a string of bad choices that, that God has allowed evil to come into my life over or have I been faithful and this evil has come into my life because of evil men. I, I think it's important for us to, to pray through those, through those things and discern through the Spirit what that actually means. Um, but we do see that his desire was, was to be there, and uh, Satan hindered him. And so it's, it's a, a valid point for us to consider in our lives. Any other thoughts on verses 17 and 18? Bruce? On that same line, is it the chastening of the Lord? Right. Yeah, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Yeah, for sure. Ethan. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I like that. All right, moving on to the last section, verses 19 and 20. His delight talks about uh, their faith early on, his praise for them. He talks about his desires to be with them. And then he talks about his delight, that even in the midst of these dark and evil things, even as he's thinking, man, Satan hindered me from being there. But I still have hope and joy and peace that one day I'm going to see you face to face. He says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and our joy. And so as he continues his thoughts, he then goes on to give them reasons to continue in their faith. And the biggest reason was that one day they would stand before Christ. One day they, they would see their Savior face to face, that all the suffering and the turmoil and the tension and the, the persecutions that all of these things would melt away. And it's hard for us to picture in, in moments when we're in the intense battles, these things will ever melt away. But when we see Jesus, they will melt away and they will be nothing to us. They'll, they'll be a distant memory if we even remember them at all. Why? Because we'll be consumed with the goodness and the glory of our Savior. And so we can't get too hung up on what's going on in this life. Why? Because this life isn't the end. Should we recognize difficulties? I think it's okay to do that. Should we encourage others in their difficulties? I think it's, it's excellent for us to do that. Should we use the difficulties that we've been through to encourage somebody in the difficulty they're going through? That's scriptural, right? You've gone through a challenge so that you can help your brother and sister in Christ. But it's not just because misery loves company. It's not to sit in a circle and say, yeah, life is hard and nothing's ever going to get better and we're never going to make it through and, and have the woe is me Eeyore, there's a, one preacher I, I listen to, and he says, you know, Christians oftentimes are, are just navel gazers, and it's like all they do is walk around with their head down looking at their belly button because they're so discouraged about life. That's not our lot in life. We're to be joyful and rejoicing and, and happy when persecutions come, for great is our reward in heaven. And that's what Paul is saying here. The persecutions have been great, but great is our reward in heaven. And Paul talks about them as... as for what is our hope, what is our joy, what is our crown of rejoicing? Paul says, it's you in the presence of the Lord. And the picture he's using there would be of, of like the crown jewels, the, uh, a crown that would be placed on his head. And in that crown are these jewels that, that those jewels represent these people who had believed the gospel. These people that, that Paul went in and with fierceness and deep desire at threat of his own life said, I, I'm going to make known to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever it costs me. And though I may have to leave in the middle of the night, understand my heart is there. And with even greater joy, I know I'll see you again one day. Paul says, you are my crown of rejoicing. As I said at the beginning, certainly his, his primary joy was seeing his Savior face to face. But his secondary joy was seeing those whom he had the privilege to lead to the Lord in the presence of Jesus. And I think that's a sobering thought. For this reason only, who is our crown of rejoicing when we get to heaven? Like, who have we labored intensely for that they would understand the reality of the gospel? Who have we 
prayed for? Who, who though we haven't been them, with them in physical proximity, has God kept in our heart as somebody that we're burdened for, for the sake of the gospel, that, that we would put our life on the line so that they could come to know Jesus as their Savior? As Paul is expressing his heart here, there, there was no doubt in their mind that Paul loved them. No doubt. They could sense it. They could feel it. They could read it. They, they could sense that he loved them. And it was not just sensed through his words, but it was sensed in his coming to them in the first place. It was sensed in his desire to be with them again. Paul says, you're my joy. You're my hope. You're my crown of rejoicing. And, and, and what is it that these things mean? One commentator said, looking forward to the return of Jesus, Paul asked the Thessalonian believers what he most anticipated and what would give him the greatest joy what crown would he wear and what would make him the most proud? His ample is simple but profound. It is those with whom he has shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with. That was his delight. His delight was not to receive things for himself. His delight was to see those whom he shared the gospel with in the presence of Jesus. And I think, I do think, that we sometimes make heaven or eternity too much about us. I think we're all guilty of it. That, you know, we, we think of the mansion, we think of streets of gold, we think of gates of pearl, we think of all these wonderful things. But, but eternity is about Jesus. And if eternity is about Jesus, what should the present be about? It should be about Jesus. It should be about standing in his presence, being fully accepted, by him, fully loved by him, fully forgiven by him. Whether this crown that Paul is speaking of is literal or physical or, or figurative, sorry, he uses it to draw their hearts to understand how precious they were to him. And when you're going through a trial, sometimes we feel the reality of God's love for us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Paul was expressing to them. Your, your pain is great. Your suffering is great. The things you're facing, the torment you're facing, they're very real things. But understand that, that I love you and understand that God loves you. And so he encourages them with a faith for now and a faith for then. As they look to the future, they would have confidence to take the next step regardless of what that next step was. As they look to the future, even in Paul's absence, they would have confidence to move on because Paul assured them that they were, they were in the right faith. As Dave was talking about, are we on the right branch? They were on the right branch, and it was connected to the vine, and that vine was Jesus. They were moving in the right direction, and Paul basically in this letter is simply compelling them to keep doing what you're doing, keep, keep walking forward. And it's like what we said a few weeks ago. Paul is basically saying, you're a good church. Keep it up. You're, you're moving in the right direction. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep thinking towards the day when you will see him face to face, and that will compel you to take your next step in this life, um, regardless of what comes your way. Paul's desire was to comfort their hearts, and I think, I think they were comforted. I, I think as they read chapter 2, as they read these verses, to hear Paul say, for what is our hope and our joy and our crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of the Lord? He's reminding them again that one day they would be reunited, and it would be together. It would be together in the presence of Jesus. And that should bring a comfort to our hearts that compels us to take the next step in whatever we face in this life. Any thoughts on verses 19 and 20? I just see Paul's pastor's heart. Yeah. 
deal with Corinth and the carnality. We have Israel with all the churches, multiple churches in Galatia, that have left him and gone to those false doctrines. Hmm. And yet, here's these guys. I don't know how many times in ministry I get so discouraged. And then I just pull out the prayer list and start going down that list and just praising God for those who are faithful. Yeah. Those who were still there, those who are who will be, yeah. but they were my source of hope and my yeah. source of joy and the reason to stay in the ministry, yeah. you know, because of them. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? So I have one final question for you, and then we'll close. Who are you taking to heaven with you? Who are you laboring for? And we know that salvation is not of us, right? We get that. We can't convince people to say, be saved. We can't force people to be saved. But who are you loving to Jesus? I think it's a question to consider because it compels us to think, it compels us to think about people as, as more than just a commodity that we have in this life. It, it compels us to think about them as eternal souls. And I, I don't have the circle of influence that you have, and you don't have the circle of influence that I have. But who are you seeking to love to Jesus? I love it when somebody gets saved and you see their life begin to change, and then you see the circles around them begin to change. Why? Because it's proof that the gospel took hold in their heart. And how far is that circle going to reach? Well, as long as they stay, stay submitted to the Lord, as long as I stay submitted to the Lord, only God knows that answer. And so as we think about the people in our lives, who is it that we're laboring for? As you labor for them, understand this, you will be hindered by Satan. But as you labor patiently, as you labor faithfully, I think God will give an increase that, that maybe at times we doubt. But Paul wasn't doubting here. He knew they were saved. He knew the gospel was still influencing Thessalonica, even in his absence. And Paul didn't make the gospel about him. He made it about Jesus. And when the gospel is about Jesus, it does an eternal work. But let's think on that question as we leave tonight. And uh, maybe God will open a door this week for us to share the truth of Jesus with somebody. And if he does, be bold. Don't be a jerk, but be bold. Let him know that you love him, and let him know that Jesus loves him, that he gave his life for him. Let's pray tonight as we are dismissed. God, we thank you. And... We have so much to be thankful for, but, but ultimately, God, we thank you for our salvation, which is in Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in the life to come. God, we thank you that we have been reconciled and redeemed and forgiven. And God, it, it, it brings a freeness to our lives that I think at times we, we lose sight of. God, we get to labor from a heart of joy because we're saved. And I pray that as we move forward in this life, that heart of joy would be evidenced to the world in the love that we express to them as we share the gospel with them. God, I thank you for the faith you've given us for the now, and I thank you for the faith that you give us for the future. And as those things work together in tandem, God, it, it encourages our hearts when, when by all other rights we should be discouraged. As we think to the future, God, it compels us to take the next step in the present. I pray, God, that, that we would just faithfully labor. We don't know who will be saved. We don't know when the door will be open. But, God, as you open the doors, may we be faithful to walk through them. 
And we understand that if we live that type of life, God, we will face some sort of persecution. We will face some sort of hindrance. But God, help the hindrance not to sway us from what we know to be true. Help the hindrance not to sway us from, from actively following you and sharing the truth of your love to the world. Thank you again. Give us safety as we travel home. Give us great weeks as we surrender ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.